It's time to hit the switch on your energy supply. Make the switch to SSE Airtricity right now, and not only will you be joining Ireland's largest green energy provider, you'll also save 33% on electricity and gas. Yes, 33%. Go to sseairtricity.com today and get your 33% discount exclusively online. SSE Airtricity. This is Generation Green. EAB €2,168.23. Offer online only from the 10th of the 1st, 22. Rates valid from the 1st of the 5th, 22. Subject to change. One-year standard unit rate for new home gas and electricity customers and direct debit and EBIL. For details of EAB, T's and C's, rates, exit fees, standing charge and green energy claims, see sseairtricity.com. The Hard Shoulder on Newstalk. With Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at nissan.ie. It's the Hard Shoulder and it's Anton Savage in for Kieran this week. And uh, our guest this evening for the Thursday interview is a man who is, I think, the single most prolific writer that the world has ever produced because he's known for Ross O'Carroll Kelly primarily. But when you go through the list of stuff that he has written, it's extraordinary. First of all, Paul Howard, very nice to see you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me just give some of the highlights. So 19 Ross O'Carroll Kelly novels. Four Ross O'Carroll Kelly plays, a biography of Tara Brown, a screenplay of the life of Bob Geldof, Just Not Cricket, a family feature film, a play for the Abbey called Kieran Crossan is Going to Die, Triggs, the autobiography of Roy Keane's dog. You ghost wrote um, the Steve Collins biography. You ghost wrote the George Hook biography. You wrote The Hostage, a book about the IRA kidnappings in the 70s and 80s. The Joy, the true story of an inmate's life in uh, Mount Joy Prison. And of course, in the midst of all of that, there is the gaffers, the account of the relationship between Roy Keane and Mick McCarthy. Mother of divine. I'm just exhausted listening to that. <laughs> I, had a, I had a job as well in the middle of all that. I was writing for the Sunday Tribune about sport as well. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's it sounds like a lot of work when it's you put it like compendium. that. And it, I should say that the, the latest one, which is on the shelves at the moment, is called Aldrin Adams and the Cheese Nightmares, which is a story aimed at uh, mid-teens, eight, late No, early, a bit earlier, 8 to 12. Eight yeah, to 12. 8 to 12. And it's about a boy who effectively can enter the nightmares of others thanks to the consumption of his father's cheese, from his father's cheese shop. Exactly, yeah, yeah. He, he's, um, it's a superpower and he discovers it. So he's quite an ordinary kid, um, but he discovers he has this really strange superpower. When he eats cheese late at night, just before he goes to sleep, and if he thinks really, really hard about someone, he can enter their nightmares and help affect the endings, help change the outcome of the nightmares. Um, but he doesn't know why. He doesn't like he. It, it, I suppose it's like all superhero stories. At the beginning, there's the struggle to find out why have I got this? Why does it not come with an instruction manual? Who am I supposed to fight if anyone? Am I um, good? Am I bad? Have am I, I good? Am I, exactly. Is, is you know, should I even be doing this? You know, should I be changing the outcome of people's nightmares? And so he has to go on a journey, and it's a journey of discovery. Um, and now, it takes him. part of this, Paul, that I think is testament to your craft. Because a lesser writer would simply have had him consume generic cheese. What's interesting is that every nightmare pretty much is prefaced by a different and more exotic cheese that he has consumed. <laughs> he goes through Roquefort, yeah. Camembert. You mentioned at one point a cheese which is banned on public transport in France. Oh, it was. Oh, yeah, of course. It was. is banned. It was Napoleon's favourite cheese, as it happens. And um, yeah, you're not allowed to bring it 
on public transport in France. And I discovered this. My wife and I, Mary, we were at a concert in the Hollywood Bowl about 10 years ago. We went to see Stevie Wonder. We were driving by. They had tickets. We got tickets. It was amazing. We went and got a picnic, as they all do in the Hollywood Bowl, and we bought some apoise. And I opened the apoise and within a couple of minutes, people 10 rows in front of us were turning back saying, <laughs> what's that smell? And I actually think Epoise might be French for what's that smell? <laughs> and we had to put it away in the end and dump it on the way out of the ground. Is it consumable though? Like, would you? Oh, would it's you, delicious. Is See, it? the stinkier the cheese, the the, the more flavoursome oh, it is. I mean, yeah, like smelly cheeses, never, they never taste as bad as they smell. They always taste surprisingly good. Would you be willing to try the Sicilian one that has the maggots? Oh yeah, definitely, yeah. 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 I mean it's all all cheese really is is rotting. You know, it's all it's all decomposing. So it's a it's a decomposing milk product. And the skill in cheese making as um, I learned when I got a, a, a tour around uh, Sheridan's from Kevin Sheridan, it's it's all cheese really is about controlling the rate at which it it de decomposes and that's about maintaining the flavor. So the blue cheeses for instance, it's the spores that that give it its magnificent taste. This is obviously the correct use of time. When you have access to Paul Howard for an extended interview, you should dedicate <laughs> the vast majority of it to a discussion about the philosophy of cheese. Well, cheese was... I, I'm obsessed with cheese. I'm I got totally that obsessed with it. It's my favourite food. If I was on a desert island and I can only eat one, one food for the rest of my life, it would be cheese. But it's always given me nightmares when I eat it at night. And when we go out to a restaurant, I don't really like dessert. So I would never eat, I would never have, you know, a dessert after. I like something savoury, so I have cheese. Even though I know I'm not getting a good night's sleep. <laughs> I'm going to pay the price, but it's worth it. And my, Mary gets cheese nightmares as well. And some people think they're they're an old wives' tale. But for me, they're real. Um, they really do happen. And, you know, they're not always terrifying nightmares. Sometimes they're just surrealistic, you know, like giant, giant scarecrows and... Uh, seagulls chase me down the road, that kind of thing. Which, of course, then is the genesis of Aldrin Adams and the cheese nightmares. But one of the things that I want, the reason I wanted to go through the big long list of, of all that you have done so far, obviously, because the, the oeuvre will only expand as time goes on. How do you pick which you're going to do? Whether it's ghostwriting for somebody, whether it's, it's nonfiction, whether it's fiction, whether it's Ross, are you just taken by a muse or do you plan it? Yeah, usually, usually, kind of, I have an idea four or five years before I do anything about it, and that was the case with with Aldrin Adams. Um, the idea came five years ago, and I was just so busy with other things, um, and it was just during the lockdown I suddenly had a bit of time on my hands, and I had pitched it to Puffin in the UK, and they really liked the idea, but it was really just an idea at that point, and they had some thoughts. Um, I got two uh, terrific um, editors called Ruth Brophy and Anthea Townsend, and you know, I'd never written a, a children's book before, not on my own. And so they gave me great guidance in, you know, what to what to do with the character. But that's a bit that I'm intrigued story. by, how you decide to say, well, I've never done this style of writing. I mean, like your, your partnership with Gordon Darcy mm. was a total departure from anything that you had done before. Yeah. Similarly, y you seem to wait a couple of years, many years, and then do another nonfiction. Yeah. How do you pick them? Well... I, I, I suppose they're always they're always kind of percolating for a long time. Like the Tara Brown book, for instance, I was working on that for ten years before I wrote it. Um, so it kind of became part of my life, and then then I just realised I actually should probably write this book because otherwise it's going to be the longest project I've ever 
worked on and never actually completed. Um, and Tara Brown, of course, we should say, he's the, the Guinness the, the Guinness air, air who's, who's referencing the opening lines of A Day in the Life. Um, I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. Um, but usually I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I suppose what, what I do, I, I spin plates. I have to have a Ross book every year and I know when I'm going to write that and I know when I'm going to finish it and I know when it's going to come out because it's it's an annual thing. So that's part of a schedule. But in between, when I finish writing a Ross book, I'll have five months where I don't have to write Ross apart from the weekly column. Uh, and that's when I say, I work on my children's book. That'll be next. But I have a, I have a diary that's filled for the next two years, right? Now, I don't mean I'm, I, I'm not Hillary Clinton. I don't know who I'm having, you know, dinner with in two years' time. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, it's color-coded as to what projects I'm going to be working on in, in the future. Now, it will change. You know, other projects come in and other projects go out. But, but I have a rough also, idea what I'll be doing. And in I get the sense you treat it like a proper job. Like you, you go on to your office, you set mm. aside 10, 11 hours, and you just write for that period. Yeah, yeah. I have to, I think, you know, because I, I think I could be quite lazy. It doesn't sound like it when you read that list <laughs> out, but I think I, I could habitually, I could be quite lazy if I didn't force myself to do it. I get up at five every morning and work. And I think part of that is imposing a hardship on myself that it, for me, it has to feel like work. Um, if it doesn't feel like work, I don't feel like I've earned the money that I get. It's a, it's a strange, I know it's a strange attitude to have. I think it probably relates to, you know, I think it relates to being working class, to be honest. You know, I, I, I think I, I have guilt about money that I feel I didn't earn, I didn't work hard for. And it's it seems counterintuitive because you would have thought that a creative process, particularly a funny creative process, you, you know, you almost don't want to look at it too close in case it disappears. Whereas mm. you'll do it to time, to a deadline, on a right date. Yeah, I mean, roughly to a deadline. I mean, you know, I could be I could be late or early. And I suppose the difficulty with writing comedy when I, when I write the Ross books is when you get up at five in the morning, you don't always feel uh, funny. And, you know, I don't jump out of bed singing June is bursting out all over. Like, I, I, you know, I'm like anyone else. I roll out of bed and, you know, you know, wish I was filled with anger and resentment, <laughs> filled with anger and resentment <laughs> wishing I was somewhere else, you know. And uh, and then I get down, I get a cup of coffee and, you know, about quarter past five, my mind, my, my mind kicks in. But I'm used to it as well. And I think because I worked in newspapers for so many years, I'm used to the idea of deadlines. And I know I, I have a kind of intuitive sense of how fast I should be working or how slow I, I can afford to work. So, you know, at the moment I'm working on a script and I've got two scenes left and I know uh, I have to have it finished by tomorrow, but I know exactly how fast I have to work tomorrow and I will finish it right on deadline. You say you, you worked in, in um, newspapers. It wasn't like you dabbled in newspapers. You were deputy sports editor for the Tribune? Yeah, and the, I was the chief sports writer. Chief sports writer. Um, mostly. Um, and I loved it. Which I, was significant. I mean, that that was a yeah. hugely influential paper. It was Its sports section was seen as being one of the better ones in the, mm. in the Sundays at the time. And if I remember rightly, you had Formas being the only person in history to have a defamation suit against you for coverage of a school's game. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For getting somebody's name wrong, for getting a kid's name wrong. His dad sent me a solicitor's letter demanding an apology, a correction and a retraction. He waived damages, thankfully. And um, But Ross just started as a sideline. It was a bit of fun on a Friday afternoon. But then it just became it just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I got this offer from Penguin to do the two books. And it was taking up so much of my time. And I remember I went to the Olympics in Athens in 2004. And I took a book with me to finish. 
and I was working all day, like the Olympics, it's every day is a long day. So I would start, I'd get up at five and get the bus to whatever venue I was going to see sport at that day and spend a day writing in the media center and back at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And then I was doing four hours on this Ross book. So I was getting maybe two or three hours sleep a night. And I did that for a month at the Olympics. And I realized, I think I'd come to realize then I couldn't do the two. So I'd have to park one. This is the bit that amazed me. It seems I always read it at the start as satire of its subjects. Mm. I, the people to whom it referred seemed to read it as as lionization of them. It, like it got embraced yeah. by the people it appeared to want to pillory. Did that surprise you? Yeah, it 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 really disappointed me actually at the start. <laughs> <laughs> because you know you you know when you get invited to Blackrock College to give the senior cup team their pep talk, you know you've lost. You know, as a satirist, you just know there's something that's gone wrong here. Well, you you may not have noticed, Paul. I, I don't. Did you notice that I dressed up in your honour? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to say because I've seen you dressed like that before. <laughs> I wore my Leinster School's Senior Cup jersey. Right. Okay. F- to do the interview. Yeah. They take it seriously, Ross. Yeah. No, they Ross. do. No, Paul. listen. I don't mind being called Ross. It's happened. But so they often. do. Like that's. This is not yeah. a joking matter. Yeah, they do, they do. I think I think they do take it seriously. But I I also think there's a there's definitely an element of humor in there as well. I I mean I see it all the time when I I cover this BlackRock. We were filming at Blackrock Michaels last year and this this kid from Michaels just walked into the Blackrock section. It was just amazing. We had the camera. Adrian McCarthy was doing a documentary for RTE and he's kind of filming the crowd. And this guy, he, probably, he clearly knew who I was, like, you know, because he was kind of playing up to the whole thing. And his collar up, walks into the Blackrock crowd and starts kind of walking the length of the, of the stand. And I could just hear this outrage starting up. You know, bleep off to your own side of the ground. Bleep off. Bleep off. Go back to your own side. And he walked the whole length, like Liam Gallagher, shoulders back, cigarette, you know, smoking and looking everybody up and down. And then he walked back again. And when he got back to the end, he just looked in the camera and went, pack of virgins. And off he went. And I'm sorry, you, you have to have a sense of irony about it to do something like that, you know? To any extent, do you resent... Ross O'Carroll Kelly at this point because some of the work like if the the uh, by the biography of Tara Brown that we we spoke about that was described by the Irish Times as a masterpiece and some of your pieces of either ghostwritten work or some of your non-fiction work are really significant and at the same time you know well I have to churn out another Ross for the masses yeah. do you ever think I'd, I'd like to take him out and just shoot him and be done <laughs> um, no not really I mean is it the checks Paul is it <laughs> checks are fine I mean I have a 30 year mortgage I mean that's kind of uh, you know that that you know that that'll keep you working you know until you're 65 but not not really I really enjoy doing it like you know I, I've just finished the, the new Ross book it's out in a few weeks it's called Normal Sheeple and Ross he goes he takes his daughter Honor to the Gwaeltacht and he sort of gets sucked into life in Kerry and ends up playing for Gaelic football for on Gwaeltacht and there's always something to do with Ross you know and there's always something happening in the news that I think, how am I going to reflect that? How am I going to how am I going to send that up? Like his dad is the Taoiseach now and he's kind of set Ireland on this totally, utterly insane course uh, where 
he's banning like Surika Ross's wife she's become the minister for climate action and her crazy idea is to ban sheep and cows because you know they destroy because they create harmful gases and uh, and and Charles just basically wants to get rid of farming so he's kind of gone along with this so so Ireland is sort of changing under under Charles's uh, Ch- uh, Charles's rule but there's always stories like you know and I really I love writing Ross I really do enjoy doing it but I, when I finish a book and I know I've got five months to do something else while planning the next Ross book, I love that as well. And I suppose it's the best of both worlds. I get to write the comedy that I want to write uh, and then do other things too. How do you come up with the puns? Because I have to tell you, I literally cannot go down Sydney Parade Avenue without thinking, should have got off at every time. Yeah. Do so right. do you do you just write the long list of puns and say... Some, some of them I steal. Like, I, I kind of... The, the phrase there's a phrase in Liverpool should have got off at Lime Street, which is the the I think it's the second last stop before Liverpool Central. I could be wrong, but I mean it, it's it's something like that, you know. Should have got off at Lime Street Station, and and I I did the Sydney Parade one because when we were kids, we, Lansdowne Road Station was always closed on match days, and we would get off at at Sydney Parade and walk to the ground. So that's where that one came from. Which of course um, for people is a euphemism for I believe it's called the withdrawal method. Coitus interruptus. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, Vatican chicken, as it was called, uh, fifty years ago. <laughs> I, Vatican chicken. Vatican I had chicken. Never heard yeah. That <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I I love puns. I've always loved puns. Uh, still love puns. Aldrin Adams and the Cheese Nightmares is full of puns. Um, it you know Aldrin's dad goes out into the street and tries to drum up business for the cheese shop by you know dresses up in a mouse costume and starts shouting puns through a loud hailer. So um, they're just kind of I think in puns a lot, especially when I have to come up with a new title for the next Ross book. Uh, my mind just works in puns, and it's really annoying because I can't switch it off when I start. How do you handle then when you work with others? Because I mentioned the Steve Collins biography, uh, I mentioned the well, I suppose autobiography if it's ghostwritten. The same is is the case with George Hook. Is it difficult to take on the voice of the person you're you're ghostwriting? Um, in George's case, no, not at all. In George's case, because uh, you know George and I are good friends, and I know him really well. And um, I, I, I hear his voice. And <laughs> when I write Charles O'Carroll Kelly, I hear George's voice. And I, to- I told him that. And he was very flattered by it, actually. <laughs> um, so uh, when I and, and the thing about working on George's book was that all of George's stories, stories about his life, he'd kind of honed them over many, many years on the on the, you know, the after dinner circuit and everything. So. It wasn't difficult at all. Uh, you know what? I really But that can be a challenge book. because they become, they, they get caught in amber and slightly falsified the more they get told, don't they? Do they lose their freshness when they've been on the... I think a lot of them were kind of new new to the readership of the book, you know? Um, uh, and, and he dug deep in a lot of places and told stories that he hadn't told before. Really, really painful stories. And when he read, the, I remember when George kind of read the manuscript back when we'd finished it together, he said... You know, there's lots of points in this where I don't come out well, and and he said that's how I know it's a good autobiography. And I was because I thought he might read it and think, oh, I wonder should I say that? And it's oh, really it's, extraordinary. It's very raw and it's very it's open. very raw and it's him. And I'm I'm really really that's one of the, the the things I've done in my career that I'm I'm most proud of. And uh, and I I from my part was mostly transcription. 
You know, it, I didn't even have to capture the voice. The voice is there, and it was mostly transcription for me. And same with Steve Collins? No, Steve was a little bit dip, more difficult, I think. Um, Steve was telling a story of his life, and we'd started the, the story of a year in his life, and he wanted it to be like uh, Eamon Dunphy's Only a Game. And about six months into that year, he was suddenly handed the, fight, the chance to fight Chris Eubank. So it, it suddenly put, a, you know, a fire under the book. It suddenly became something that, you know, we thought might sell a few hundred copies, like a sort of cult boxing book, which kind of, and it turned into this, you know, book that we hoped would sell thousands and thousands of copies. It didn't in the end as it happened. Um, but uh, Well, that was unhelped by him to some extent uh, rejecting your good works on it publicly. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that was it really. I, I think, um, you know, there may, there may have been other factors, but we did, we, Steve and I fell out over the book and it was, it was, it was down to sort of a credit thing of, um, you know, he did. He t- <laughs> I mean, I can laugh about it now, but I mean, he told Pat Kenny, like, you know, on the Late Late Show, um, I, Paul, just help me with the spelling. And <laughs> which kind of which kind of hurt because any Steve Collins, you can't belt him. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wouldn't even notice like, you know. <laughs> how long ago was that? How long did it take oh, for I that mean, bruise to probably, depart? Well, how long is that? I mean, it's 20, 25 years ago. 26 years ago, actually, this summer since he beat Chris Eubank. So, I mean, it's not something I think about every day. <laughs> it's something I ask for, about from time to time, you know, but um, yeah, I've let it go. So remind us then of your schedule. When does the next Ross one hit the shelves? Uh, Normal, Normal Sheeple is out on the 17th of August. Um, and then there's a the third book in the Gordon Darcy uh, series is coming out in October. He goes What's he like to work with? Total Prima Donna. Oh, Gordon's just a delight to work with, you know. He really is fantastic. You're contractually required to say that. I am, yeah. <laughs> we always have this row over who who's the Brian O'Driscoll and who's the Gordon Darcy in the relationship. <laughs> the one that is out now is Aldrin Adams and the Cheese Nightmares. If you have a child in and around the 8, 9, 10 sort of... Yeah, up to 12 bracket. actually, yeah. yeah. And you want them to have... And that's the other thing with... with uh, this goes back to where we start... The work ethic. One of the great things about children's books, Paul, is they can be about 80 pages long. This thing is 410 pages. Yeah. You can put a child to sleep for several years at night with this. It's, <laughs> it's pretty good weighty. value. You, you can actually put them to sleep by whacking them over the head with it. It's that thick, yeah. Paul Howard, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks, Anton. It's time to hit the switch on your energy supply. Make the switch to SSE Airtricity right now, and not only will you be joining Ireland's largest green energy provider, you'll also save 33% on electricity and gas. Yes, 33%. Go to sseairtricity.com today and get your 33% discount exclusively online. SSE Airtricity. This is Generation Green. EAB €2,168.23. Offer online only from the 10th of the 1st, 22. Rates valid from the 1st of the 5th, 22. Subject to change. One-year standard unit rate for new home gas and electricity customers and direct debit and EBIL. For details of EAB, T's and C's, rates, exit fee, standing charge and green energy claims, see sseairtricity.com.